Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Today at the roundtable, we have uh, myself, I'm hosting, I'm Nathan Brown, and I have Dr. David Salas with us, and we are going to be digging into your questions. And what we have loved lately is the amount of questions that you all send us through email. We apologize that we don't have the capacity to get to all of them written, um, but we do appreciate having them because then we can try to address them through this podcast. And for us, it's been a fun way to engage with you all who are following along what we're doing and hopefully have discussions that are helpful for you. Um, one thing, when we go into episodes like this, people are asking pretty personal questions about their individual injury history. And as you know, and we've said this before, this podcast is not medical advice. This is educational content, discussing case studies and working our way through how we would process it with the information that we have. Um, so with that out of the way, David, how are you and kind of what was your week like and what phase of training are you in right now? Yeah, doing good. I'm a little bit tired. Uh, just kind of a long week at work. Uh, we have a long weekend currently, though, going into this weekend, nice. so that'll be nice. Get some sleep tonight and not have to worry about getting up early tomorrow. Um, but no, doing well. Uh, I'll be doing a track season this year, so I got a couple things lined up in the next few weeks. So um, by the time this comes out, I probably would have already ran it, but um, 3K on deck next Saturday, um, outdoors, and then... Um, I'll be doing a 5K a couple weeks after that on the track as well. And then I'll probably take a few weeks off and then come back early April for another 5K. And then I'd probably do the second Oxy meet in the beginning of May for another 5K. And then probably cool. take a little break after that. So we're kind of ramping it up right now, just kind of getting used to being at that pace again. Right. And also just getting used to spiking up again. I'm I'm starting to get to that age where I'm like... <laughs> These, 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 spike, these, yeah, these, these spikes <laughs> are starting to sting a little bit more by the year. <laughs> But uh, I think, I mean, I still think spiking is good. But yeah, doing good. Cool. Good. I've uh, finally been back to running, I would say, somewhat consistently for the past three to four weeks. And I know I had my own solo episode where I kind of talked about my injury over the past year. So if you haven't heard that, you can go back if you want context. But I've been encouraged because actually over the past couple weeks with the amount of running I'm doing, my foot actually feels better now than it did three weeks ago. Kind of knock on wood. I don't feel like I'm out of the woods, but um, there's a five-mile race that happens in the first weekend of March every year in town. It's called the Bach Run, and so it's at our local brewery, and it's just an out and back, and it's just oh, like yeah, yeah. You've told me about two thousand yeah. runners, super fun. I would actually love yeah. for you all to come out here and run it with us. Um, it like sells out pretty early after registration opens, but it's just a really fun event, and I'm glad that. As of now, I'd be able to run it. Like, I'm not race it, but I'd be able to run it. So, um, like, I ran six miles almost this morning. So that's been really encouraging to just be able to get out there and move again. And I've been doing some more lifting and all that kind of jazz. So it's been good. So we are going to move into, again, this is a pretty thick episode. The questions are hard-hitting and, and pretty specific, but they should hopefully be enlightening to think about how we process injuries, how you can think about the relationship of shoes and injuries and all that kind of stuff. But before we even go to that, we want to ask our subjective question of the week, and it was actually inspired. David chugged the rest of his noon hydration before <laughs> we just started recording. <laughs> And so we want to ask you all, what is your favorite in-run or post-run hydration? Um, what is the thing that you lean to or what's the, your favorite for your stomach or flavor or whatever? So drop below what your favorite is and why. All right, here is our first question. Uh, Justin sends in an injury and shoe question. And basically, he was saying, a couple of years ago, I ended up with a series of injuries, including a pretty severe calf strain, followed immediately by some Achilles tendonitis on both sides. Further, uh, while I was in PT, my doctor noted that my ankle range of motion was very limited. And he said, like, limited enough that he checked measuring with his measuring device uh, to see that it was there. He's finally getting his mileage back up and shooting for Eugene in April. I Assuming he means a marathon in Eugene, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, I think very so. no Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think Eugene marathons around that time. Yeah. I'm very nervous though about re-injuring my calves. I know that no one shoe can be expected to protect fully from an injury, but I'm wondering what sort of recommendations or ideas you've had for shoes to experiment with. Fortunate enough that financially there isn't any barriers, so we can try a couple things to see what works. Lately, he's been doing longer workouts in AP threes which he does like. Nice. 
I mean, yeah, I don't think the Alpha Flight 3 is a bad choice there. I think I would probably look at something that has a little bit more toe spring if you're having some calf sensitivity. Obviously, address the calf stuff first. You I'm know, assuming, I, I, I think he means Audios Pro 3s, AP. Audios Pro 3. AP 3? Audios Pro Alpha 3? Fly, oh, wait, oh, you're probably right. I don't know why AF3 would be Alpha Fly, huh? I don't know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's all good. We're starting off strong, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad one. Like, that's another one where it's kind of like in the same wheelhouse where you kind of have a sharper toe spring up front. I think the Saucony Endorphin Elite kind of falls in there as well. Um, really, it just kind of comes down to what feels good for you. And I, But I would probably assume there might be some underlying stability issues there, like deep in those intrinsic muscles, of, whether it's the foot, calf, lower leg, proximal hip. So something with a little bit of a wider base to it, maybe a sharper toe spring. The new CLOX might actually not be a bad option either from yeah, Hoka. That's super rocker the whole way through. Yeah, yeah. So I would look probably something more along that kind of almost hyper rocker profile, but more so at the front than the back. Yeah, I think a couple things that pop into my head. I know that he's asking about shoes, but I think to give some context of some of the stuff he's been going through. So when he when he's speaking of ankle range of motion uh, limited, what we're assuming is that that means dorsiflexion, so the toes coming up towards the shin. You do need enough of that to get through the gait cycle. You use that through the mid stance of running. Um, and then he's talking about Achilles tendinopathy or sorry, he said Achilles tendonitis and calf strains. And so one of the things that we think about uh, with from not a shoe perspective, but from kind of an injury perspective is, you know, if you're not already on a continual Achilles tendon loading program, probably smart to maybe consult your physio as you're going to be building your, your mileage back up just to make sure that you have a maintenance program of calf loading because these things can take a really long time to heal. We have a whole episode on Achilles tendinopathy that you can go back and listen to. Um, but that will be an important part of getting to Eugene healthy. And I'm glad that you have a PT who you're working with. It sounds like they know what they're doing. So I would just maybe check in with them. Hey, what things should I make sure that I'm doing to prevent this from coming back outside of the shoe realm? So we'll kind of put the non-shoe realm off to the side now. But now when we think about the shoes... Like you said, David, you started talking about different rockered shoes. And part of the reason we talk about rockered shoes with Achilles stuff and with limited ankle range of motion is that when you have a rocker, which is that curved side and under bottom part of the shoe, um, that does two things. One, it replaces the natural rocker of the foot. So if the shoe has a rocker that you're rolling over, that means you don't need to use as much dorsiflexion or that ankle mobility that he's limited in, you don't need as much to have a, to, if you have a rocker there. The second thing it does is it decreases the overall demand on the calf and Achilles, um, partially because you're going through less range of motion and less strain. And so, um, and it, it decreases plantar pressures. So the part of the pressure by the ball, of the foot is decreased, which means that you need to produce less force through your calves. So um, kind of with that in mind, a couple of shoes that, that popped into my mind or even just concept is, you know, what you would probably want to consider the most is what am I going to be spending the most time in or the most time on my feet doing? So you've already mentioned longer workouts. You have a shoe that has a rocker to it. Um, I would I would play around with different models, both that have a plate and maybe some that don't, that give you that rocker that's a little bit more uh, assistive. And you had talked about that four-foot rocker, David, and I agree. And one shoe that is still on the market is the uh, Glide Ride 3 from ASICS. And that if that shoe ends up working out for you and you can feel like it's not putting extra load on your calf, um, I, I would recommend kind of checking that one out um, and seeing if it works for you for a lot of your daily training, maybe some of the longer runs kind of stuff. It's got a lot about a cushion. It is really, it's soft and, and cushioned, but it has a pretty steep rocker in the front and it has a plate that kind of supports it it's not a super stiff plate but stiff enough that you would actually get to use the rocker so that was another one that came into my head um i think that i agreed with you from like a racing shoe perspective if you're looking at that endorphin elite just making sure that the you know where that rocker is doesn't make it hard for you to get up over it i know for me that one is a little bit harder to get up, whereas the Endorphin Pro 3 for me feels like I can just kind of keep rolling through. Um, another shoe potentially for training that that ha- could potentially work is the um, SC Elite 3. We haven't tested the 4 yet, but the SC Elite 3 is 
we talk about this in our private chat, but a lot of us really like it more for training than we do for racing. And so if that's a comfortable shoe for you and you can feel that rocker, um, that, that could be an option too. So are there any others for you, David, yeah. that come into your head worth trying? Yeah, going into the training side of things, I think the OnCloud Monster could be another option as well, um, whether it's the one or the two. Two just came out. Um, it Same thing. High stack, rockered, has a plate, a tiny bit of flexibility, but you know it lets you just roll off the front there. And it's one of my favorite shoes for longer, steady work as well. I really like your idea about the Cielo X one. I feel like that's that's a very rockered shoe, like just rolls the whole way. So yeah, great, cool. Well, let's go to our next question. This is from Jamie. Jamie sends a question about trail uh, trail shoes and fitting of those shoes. Um, and Jamie's been having some kind of biting on the arch of their foot. Uh, whether we, it wasn't super clear if it was blisters or some other thing, but we're kind of assuming blisters. And they they ask any recommendations for trail running shoes that are wider in the midfoot area that may alleviate this problem from reading your website, the ultra lone peak eight wides may seem to be a best option for midfoot with, but people seem to complain about the durability of ultras and favor topo athletic brand instead, which also has the same wide toe foot, but apparently it's narrower in the midfoot than the lone peaks. They're open to suggestions. Um, they uh, are using it for a 10K trail running on dry, flat, non-technical conditions. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think there's a larger question to be had here, like what's creating the irritation on the inside of that foot? I'm assuming the inside yep. of the foot based on the whole arch biting thing. Um, sometimes it could just literally be sensitivity to the sidewall in the shoe and have nothing independent of the actual width of the upper. Um, that's almost what I naturally am kind of leaning towards there. So I, I honestly, any of those other options would probably be fine, whether it's like a lone peak or, um, the topo pursuit or, uh, ultra venture would work. Yeah. Yeah. Any of them would probably be fine. Um, and check those boxes. So it would just really be whatever you're comfortable with. I think that the I I forgot to say that what they're using is the Hoka Speedgoat fives in a two E width and I and I think what you said about sidewall is very apt there because Hokas do operate off of a lot of sidewall work through their midfoot and I've known a lot of friends who have issues you know with the with the buildup of that there so I would I would say it's more about the relationship with your foot and probably the sidewalls than it is with. Uh, the actual width of the shoe, like you said, David. And another one that came into my mind is from Salomon. It's the, um, oh my gosh, I was going to call it the Glide Ride 2. Ultra Glide. The Ultra Glide 2. Because oh, yeah. um, it's got kind of a, a looser midfoot. Um, it's not like a super wide shoe, but it doesn't constrict around any area of the foot. So I think that could be one worth checking out. That would also give you a similar kind of rockered, like slightly rockered platform and the same amount of cushion that the speed goat gives. Whereas moving to like an ultra or even with topo, if you're going with like the, with the ultra venture from topo, those go into more of like a really flexible forefoot, a little bit less cushioning and it would just be another, it would be a whole different running experience than what you're getting in the Hoka. So you could check out Solomon Ultra Glide too. Uh, that one would have that same cushioning, but has a little bit looser of a midfoot. But I personally haven't had issues with that biting from any sidewalls. So it's hard for me to know if there would be a big difference between those two. Because I got along well with the, the Hoka Speedgoat 5-2E, actually. It's like one of my favorite ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I, I get the idea of that that sidewall and there's just less in that other model. Any other ones from you? Yeah. So this one obviously is a little bit different and probably from a budget standpoint, it might not be worth the squeeze for just generic training, but the Nike ultra fly is also pretty wide. Oh yeah, it's, that's there. true. And it's that's like, really true. and it has good room for toe splay and it, it's, it's a solid shoe all around. Um, I feel like from a fit standpoint, that would probably check the boxes as well. It's just, I mean, what does that thing retail for? That's like two fifty or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like it's probably I would probably go for one of those other ones first, but that's that's another one that comes to mind. Yeah, great. 
All right, so next, Alex sends us a fun question on racing and racing shoes. Uh, Having a question about a downhill marathon and felt like it could be an interesting topic conversation for your podcast. Well, here we are. (laughs) I will be running the Revel Rockies Marathon in June. This is a marathon with a net altitude drop of 4,708 feet. Briefly, I'm a 38-year-old, moderately experienced runner, three past marathons and fastest time, 307. Nice. Um, goal is a Boston qualifying time. So here's the questions. Do you have specific racing shoes that you'd recommend for downhill racing to help quote, absorb the impact of highly net downhill racing? Um, two, would you recommend a super shoe or would that category of shoe be too unstable for a significant downhill race? Um, also of note, this person has never ran in a super shoe. So that's not something that they have, uh, experience in mostly been running in the Clifton, the Tecton X2 from Hoka and has previously ran marathons in the Brooks ghosts. Yeah. I, I'd be very hesitant to, to, uh, recommend a super shoe if you're not used to it and you're going to take it mm-hmm. down 4,000 feet of vert. Um, <laughs> it's not that it's a bad thing per se. It's just, I, I don't think the juice would be worth the squeeze there, especially if you're used to, he ran in the ghost, right? For the previous yep. marathons, it's like you've already run 307 in a ghost. It's like pretty much any other shoe would be faster um, from a performance <laughs> standpoint. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, that is not a knock on Brooks in any way, but that no. is just like it's that that, just a funny <laughs> statement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I wouldn't be worried there. I think it would just be a matter of what is comfortable for you with downhills. And it sounds like there's a little bit of a shift there because like the ghost is a pretty mm-hmm. high stack neutral shoe. And then I mean not high stack, high drop. Um, well, it's a relatively high stack too, but um, the Clifton's a five millimeter drop with a rocker. Um, I think the biggest thing that I would look into with a downhill specifically with that much is to just be a little bit careful with having something that's overly rockered, where you almost like lose your stride, if that makes sense, where you start overstriding because you have this like immense amount of gravity like pulling you down. Um, right. So I would just be hesitant of something like that. So like for some like a downhill race down the mountains in the Rockies, I don't think I would say the Cielo X one in that one. You know, I feel right. like that would be your stride is going to open up like crazy. You're probably going to be a little bit unstable. The roads are probably cambered. You're probably going to be, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't opt for that. I I would yeah. think if you were interested in something that had a little bit of a super shoe-esque feel to it, but still had a little bit more stability on it and maybe a little bit less dramatic, I would think like the A6 Super Blast could be a good option there. Um, and mm-hmm. traction on that's pretty good. So depending on what the conditions are on the Rockies and coming down the hill, like I feel like that would hold up pretty well. Um, but honestly, if you're running in a Clifton, a Clifton's not that bad of an option. Like, yeah, totally. If totally. you ran, if you've run in the Ghosts, like the Clifton, what it weighs like nine-ish ounces now. Like it's not that heavy, and yep. it has a good cushion it's a relatively responsive shoe for a trainer like that's actually not a bad option to just stay with the clifton yeah you know and there's i feel like there's a lot of potential factors you know this is this is one of those study these subjects that isn't like extensively studied i think that there was one study that came out um from the byu lab where they looked at uphill downhill and flat racing and super shoes in terms of running economy and there was uh, correct me if I'm wrong, David, if you remember, but there was some similar benefit of the percentage of running economy benefit gained through the different, uh, whether if it was uphill, flat, or downhill. And those were in the early versions of the um, Endorphin Pro. So that is not a super duper aggressive shoe. It's a little bit more narrow of a platform with a pretty solid rocker, but nothing like super, nothing super crazy. So there's that one factor of it, which is running economy of running downhill. When we run downhill, typically people experience running downhill so differently in terms of what fatigues, but from a biomechanics standpoint in general, you're going to be loading this anterior chain more throughout the the time in the run. So your shin muscles, your tibias anterior, and then your quads are going to be taking the brunt of the load. Um, something to, that, that because of that, you're already on like a pitch downhill, you probably could do a little bit lower stack of a sh- or a little bit lower drop of a shoe 
um, even if you're not used to it, just because then you're already on a little bit of a pitch and you don't need to pitch yourself even further. So I know that you said you're not using the ghost anymore because it hasn't worked for you and you've kind of come down to those hokas. And I feel like that's probably one of the things I would consider for a straight downhill race. And I looked up this race and it's like consistently downhill the whole time. It's not like it goes down and then flat and down and flat. It's just the elevation just slowly yeah. drops. Yeah. You're just, you're just going. So it seems like you'd be able to get in rhythm. And therefore, like you said, you'd want to find something that you can get in that rhythm and not kind of be pitched forward too much. So a really aggressive rocker super shoe probably is not the best option. In my mind, if you were going to go that route and you're really curious and you want to try some stuff out, I would look for one of the lower stacked ones um, that are a little bit wider platform. So actually the... Um, there was a couple that popped in my head. One was the Rocket X2 from Hoka, yeah, um, just because one. you have that slightly slightly lower stack. The Metaspeed Sky from Asics, and then Puma's uh, Deviate Nitro Elite. Those would be three that I would consider as like, hey, these could be somewhat controlled on that downhill, um, but those really aggressively rockered. Like I wouldn't take either of the Endorphin one personally. I wouldn't take either of the Endorphin ones. I wouldn't take the Vaporfly. Or this is for me, Vaporfly or Alpha Fly downhill. I'd want something that's going to kind of flatten me out a little bit and have that little bit lower drop, um, and and not too aggressively pitch forward. But I also agree with you, David, that if if the Clifton is working for you, that would actually be a super solid shoe. Slightly lower stack, um, or sorry, slightly lower drop, and you're used to the cushioning. It's a pretty that shoe can turn over decently well. Like I, yeah. that was one of my favorite trainers, and I feel like taking that and being comfortable downhill would be not the worst thing in the world. I also just think it's going to depend on where you're training. You know, if you're in, if you're able to practice this stuff, it's a whole different ball game than if you know. We I have people who have done that from Wisconsin and where I live, it's completely flat all around, and then you fly out and do this downhill run. That's a bigger deal than the shoes you choose right. um, is being able to replicate it and just get your body used to that kind of pounding. Because yes, you're running downhill, you can go maybe a little bit quicker because it's you have that momentum going with you, but it's a different kind of grind on your body. So I just make sure you prep that anterior chain. Any other thoughts from you? No, I think that's good. I mean, a lot of it, yeah, it's just literally like being used to running downhill. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, it's a lot of downhill and just listen to your body. Like as far as like what you're going to be feeling when you hit that fatigued point, because the rate of fatigue might actually be higher on the muscular demand side of things than aerobically so you might be feeling great but then you hit mile 17 and your quads start screaming at you right so just find something that you can get into rhythm stay comfortable don't get greedy like i don't think the shoe is the biggest answer here it's just literally like wear something you trust because that is a pretty extreme environment yep and something that can lock you down well so that you're not Mm -hmm. buttoned forward into the front of your shoe that that would be just make sure you got good lockdown Cool. All right. Our next question, Rachel sends in a great workout question for, for us here. So Rachel's a 27 year old female been dealing with mild hip dysplasia in her left hip for about five years now, previously ran at the collegiate and briefly professional levels, but the symptoms of instability make it very difficult to run at all, let alone decently fast pace. Oddly enough, I didn't get much pain in the hip, just a sensation of quote, dragging my left leg and not having much control over that hip. Seen several several PTs without success, and surgeons say it's too mild for surgery. Just wondering if you have any advice regarding exercises, shoes, or orthotics for stability and or efficiency, or anything else that you think might be helpful uh, that you've seen in patients with similar issues. I don't know if this is too niche a topic for the pod. Clearly not. We're reading it right now. But I thought it'd be (laughs) worth a shot since you guys are always so insightful. Well, that's super kind. So before I kick this to you, David, just a little bit of context for what hip dysplasia is, if that's not something you're familiar with. Hip dysplasia um, happens at the ball and socket joint of the hip. And so there's the socket, which is your acetabulum. Then you have the ball, which is the femoral head. What happens in hip dysplasia is that you basically have a a shallow socket. So there is less of the security of the socket over the head of the femur. Um, Again, and that leads to what she had referenced about that feelings of instability, just because you don't have a nice kind of grab onto that femoral head. Um, 
And so that's kind of the context of what we're walking into. There's different severities. Some are very, you know, very, very shallow, and there are different surgical interventions. And then some are just managed conservatively. So, David, I'll kick it over to you now, but that's just a little context on what hip dysplasia is. Yeah, I think that's great. And when you have a true hip dysplasia, I mean, man, that can be tough, like, you know, from a clinical rehabilitative standpoint, because hypermobility is hypermobility. If that thing's moving around and it's not staying in, like, I can't really change that, you know, like the structural standpoint. But what we can do is just try our best to work on stabilizing the range of motion that is available that it has. And I'll tell people a lot of times that, like, having hypermobility or having a larger range of motion at a given joint isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, We just have to be able to control it. And if you can control that range of motion, you'll be able to do a lot more. Because a lot of times people can't control themselves through their full range of motion. And then now that femoral head is starting to just shift around and do some funny things. And it that's a lot of times that like catching feeling or that kind of dragging, like I'm imagining that femoral head just kind of slightly shifting anteriorly, like as that leg is behind most likely. And then that's probably that dragging sensation of like, oh, I got to get this to advance forward. Um, so I would, and it's, it's tough. Like, I mean, a lot of this is going to be a matter of comfort, getting familiar on being one leg. So a lot of single leg activities, working the hip in every range possible. And that includes flexion, extension, adduction, abduction, internal rotation, external rotation. I think a lot of people are quick to just give you some fire hydrants and clamshells and say yep. like, oh, okay, that'll stabilize your hip. And it's like, well, no, this thing is in, this thing's unstable at a joint level. So you have to like right. do everything you can to keep that thing in the socket. It's like if someone dislocated their shoulder all the time, like you're not just going to give them external rotation exercises and send them home, right? So I, I just think of it as like an inherent joint instability on the inside. And the actual skeletal things, like I said, I can't change that. But all we, we just got to do everything we can to build everything around it and then get it more and more specific as we're getting more comfortable on that single leg loading because ultimately running is a bunch of single leg jumps through a large range of motion. I mean, especially yeah. like if you're trying to run fast, that those legs are yeah. opening up in a pretty good amount of range. So right. you have to be able to control that. And to some degree, for all we know, maybe the dragging too is like you're going into hip extension and those hip flexors are having a hard time eccentrically slowing it down and getting it back, right? Yeah. And so and there's so many different reasons for why those sensations can happen. But I think internally, at least in my from what I'm thinking, it sounds like there's just a little instability there and that femoral head might just be shifting around a little bit more. And so just trying to lock that thing down as best we can. I know you've had like a history with some hip stuff, so I would, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this. Sure. No, I, I agree with a lot of a lot of what you're saying and I think to Rachel in this case too, like I do think hip dysplasia is one of those where like it's hard to walk through because it it is there's no like cookie cutter way to walk forward through dealing with hip dysplasia, you know? And so just sorry that it's been tough so far and I hope you end up finding success with it. Um so some of the ways that I conceptualize this and I current I I was just working before I switched my roles to being at the university. I was working with a high school gal who had was recently diagnosed with hip dysplasia. So I'm going to talk about kind of our approach with with her. Um she was having a hard time for her senior year of, of high school. But, um, I think the, one of the things you can conceptualize is because you have that more shallow socket, the reality is that you don't get what we call static stability where just because of the existence of the bones on each other, they stabilize each other. And therefore, if you want stability, it has to come from the muscles and therefore your muscles are on more or need would need to be on more often to continue tribute the same amount of stability that someone else would get from just the passive structures existing. So sometimes that could be why some of that dragging feeling comes is because the muscles fatigue out very, very quickly because they're always on and providing a lot more stability than they might have to in other scenarios. So ways that I approach this with uh, runners is kind of consistent with what David was saying, but we'll start with really, really low level 
um, isol- muscle isolating exercises for every motion, flexion, internal, external rotation. And I'll have them in prone and I'll give them a TheraBand and they pull it one direction. And they're going to do like long isometric fatiguing holes. Like you're just going to be holding that until it fatigues and it can't do it anymore. Or like sets of, you know, 15 to 30 second holds just work on fatiguing that muscle out on like a postural level. So bringing a low level of, it's not like super heavy bands, it's light bands and just like fatiguing things out for a long time. And then eventually building those sort of fatiguing exercises out to the single leg work and adding some stability and and dynamic stability elements with unstable surfaces. Uh, But it's, you know, in, in its varying levels of success, I'll be honest, but uh, that's kind of the approach that I take. And it will be one of those where we'll spend, you know, six weeks on kind of these low level, long hold exercises, really build that foundation, and then just keep scaling up from there. Um, I don't have, personally, I don't have hip dysplasia. I have uh, a lot of like retro, I have acetabular retroversion, and then I have some bony like changes. And so some of these lower level exercises have been helpful for me too, just because I need to control the range of motion and I have a limited range. Um, I don't have hypermobility. And so I just have to really control it. And some of the similar exercises have helped, uh, for, for me as well, but that's kind of my approach early on. Um, but again, that's not prescriptive. It's just one of the philosophies that I take with it is how do we create the capacity for long standing dynamic stability. And I think it starts with like postural control because when you're standing and when you're walking, your stabilizing muscles are having to do more than mine are. Um, so building those up as much as you can and then eventually building it to the point where you can jump while not fatiguing those muscles out so that it doesn't start that kind of dragging sensation on you. And there, you know, that's one philosophy of maybe how that or how or why that kind of dragging sensation happens could be a fatigue related thing. But there's kind of my two cents on on that whole topic. Any other thoughts on it, David, or questions? No, I agree. I feel like we're we're pretty in line there. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Shifting directions here. Michael asks a question on midsoles and he says, I've been thinking a lot about matching shoes to runners and their particular paces and efforts. In my mind, there just has to be a way to prescribe the quote ideal midsole um, to fit somebody on a, on a few, a few key factors that we may know like stride length, cadence, and where they land with their foot in comparison to their body, and know then, therefore, which shoes will work best for them. Basically, finding the proper, quote, spring rate for their stride is a combination of the plate and the foam. I may be missing some characteristics or have chosen the wrong ones, but I'm wondering if you all have put your heads together on this, if there's a better way than, quote, running a super expensive shoe and just see how it works. I think it's a super interesting question. So what are, you, what are your thoughts here? Oh, man, that's a loaded one. That is like, yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting and it's so hard to quantify these things, right? I mean, like, sure, can we get some data from like a, from like a band or like a sensors or whatever? Like, sure, but like it's hard to tune it to the person specifically and be like, okay, so this, this, and this, based on this, this is the issue for you, right? Outside of getting some kind of an economy or something, data out of it, um, which is kind of the try it on and see, right? Like, except right. you're in a lab setting and now you're running miles in all of them. But I think there is something to be said for biomechanics and how people run. And I think there are, within the gait cycle, people do use different kinds of strategies on how they move and how they create the torque and how they run. So I think the way you would go forward with this is you would essentially have to take one of these variables and then and then test it up against i don't know let's just say five shoes and then just measure it on each one of them you know okay so your stride length have some neutral base go and now we're now we're doing a pilot study this is happening okay no mm-hmm. <laughs> <You're right>. but <laughs> um but essentially like okay so now we're going to look at the stride rate for all five of these shoes and then match it up, go do some other kind of effort, come back, match it up again and like keep going and getting the data and then see how that affects time and loading pressures and things like that. And you just kind of have to go one by one, I feel like on these variables. And it's so hard to do that to like, Mm -hmm. to to like really quantify that and know for a given person, like you would have to basically run that study three, four times on each variable and then compare the data across all of them. You know, and it's like, I don't know if the juice is completely worth the squeeze there, but 
Um, but economy is probably the the safest one there, probably the quickest one. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question. Like, it's like mm-hmm. I I think my brain goes to so many things. One is I'm assuming that by like matching the shoe to find their ideal, ideal means that it makes them the most efficient. Like you're going to find the mm-hmm. shoe that makes you the most efficient runner that you can be. Maybe he means the the one that's going to cause you the least amount of injuries. I don't know exactly, but I'm assuming running economy. I think the people that would be actually really interesting to ask this question to are Dustin Jobert, Jeff Burns, Walter Hootgammer, Ben Onig, people who test super shoes on a myriad of types of runners. Because when you do a study, likely they are capturing a lot more data than is reported in the studies, and they're looking for these correlations. And I I just think it ends up being more complex that we can't find that silver bullet kind of, I don't know, that's that silver bullet parameter or running characteristic that really matches. Like you said, you'd have to like cross check all of them to see which one is actually the one causing the the change. And just, I think that there are, are too many interactions between uh, characteristics that are hard to pin down. So like somebody who lands with a rear foot strike 32 centimeters in front of their body with 23 degrees of knee flexion might have like 40% less strength output in their quads than someone else who lands in the exact same spot. So therefore their mechanics as they go through change a ton. So I just think there are so many interactions that it makes it hard to pin down a specific thing, which is Mm -hmm. why I think that if you have the capacity, which again, capacity and availability of an individual test for this stuff, and you really care that much, that would probably be your way to go. So go hang out with Dustin in his endurance lab down in Austin, you know, like <laughs> you could go get that all tested. But the on the other side, I think that there are some people who think they may have found some stuff. So you have companies coming out with multiple types of super shoes. I think that was most obvious when Asics came out with the Metaspeed Sky and the Metaspeed Edge. They even coined them as this is our you know, one for cadence runners, and this is one for our stride runners. So they were looking at metrics based on how people chose to run at different speeds. And and they were like, if you choose this strategy to increase your running speed, you would be more appropriate for this shoe. If you choose this other one, then you would choose this shoe. You see Puma, they have their Deviate Nitro Elite, and they have their um, Fast R. So I think there's so many companies that are starting to have two. Hoka has theirs. Saucony has theirs. I think Mm -hmm. that they also have noticed things with their athletes where it's like these athletes are going to going to probably benefit more from this one, whereas these are going to benefit more here. Nike obviously has theirs too. So I think that there's something there. I, I think that being clinicians, we work with individuals. We don't work with aggregate. Um, Matt is now doing research. So he, and and I'm doing research too, but mine is in like, I'm, I'm doing research in rural health, <laughs> so I'm not I'm not doing research with runners. Um, but I think that you know we work with individuals. We don't work with aggregate. And so when we see trends, they are ends of one every single time. Right. And I think from my perspective, those ends of one make me even more convinced that we're not going to find these three characteristics that we could say these th- these three things would match this this person exactly. Um, that said, if somebody is really like pounding their heel and overstriding, I don't think they'd get on with the, the rocket X two as much as they would with the CLO X one, um, just because of like my experience with dipping down into the heel and really going into that negative drop sensation. So there might be little things like that, but I think it's so hard to apply, um, and to measure them across people. So that's, I just babbled for a long time, but I think this is a super interesting question. And I think we talk about it a lot, but I think every time we've talked about it, we've come back to this is a lot more complex than we know. And I think that some of the metrics that might actually be the most helpful aren't easily measured, which might be like vibration rate of your tendon or something like that. Um, Any other thoughts on it? Yeah. And then that's a whole field in and of itself is vibration. And that's like <laughs> totally. That's, that's yeah. So yeah, no, I I, I agree. I think it, it's just it's a very complex answer, and I wish that we could simplify it more. But I don't know if we have the data, or re- I, I just don't think we have enough to do that. Yep, I agree. Great question. 
Um, Michael, thanks for sending that in. And I know it's something that we'll keep thinking about and maybe someday we'll, we'll contribute to some research that can try to pinpoint this stuff. I know, you know, I think I, I love clinical research too, the ones that are done with technology that's available in the clinic. But a lot of times that stuff has to be fed by some kind of higher tech driven studies. So we'll, we'll see where things go, but super interesting. Okay, we've got another question about resources for people who are new to run retail. Um, this person is uh, working in a sports retail store. They sell Brooks Scott shoes, and they're this is a new world for for them and a colleague of theirs. And they're basically asking, you know, we know that we have to learn all the specs of shoes and all that kind of details, but another is biomechanics and how do you understand or translate a person's movement patterns. So they're basically asking, can you suggest reliable resources, online books, courses, et cetera, about running gait or biomechanics? Um, where to start's an important and, and what's our opinion on that? So I have a couple. Um, do you want me to go first or do you have some in your head too? No, go for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think in terms of online resources, uh, these are some that are geared towards kind of healthcare professionals. So it's a little bit I think that the biomechanics knowledge would be a little bit beyond um, and might have a lot of translation issues with just the types of language that they use if you don't have a background in some some medical stuff. But if you're eager to learn and willing to take the time to like learn what all these different terms mean, um, there's an organization we've had their founder on here, Doug Adams uh, with Run DNA. They have an, a series of online courses that... Uh, there's like a certified gait analysis level one and level two. And then they also have an essential elements of running, which is a free course. Um, so I would check out their website because I, I went through those courses uh, later in my career. And I, I did, did find that they would be a really nice place to start if you've never kind of thought about biomechanics, but you were a physical therapist who wanted to get into running. I thought they were a great starting point. That said, that they kind of assume a level of knowledge of a kind of like starting physical therapist. So there might be some things that are difficult, but at the same time, they have a free course. You could figure out kind of, do you vibe and understand what they're talking about, the essential elements of running course, then you could move forward in that. There are also some really nice yearly uh, kind of running courses that you could go to in person. Again, these are going to be led by people who are kind of leading the research in the running sphere. So Brian Heiderscheidt out of UW-Madison, Irene Davis usually goes, Chris Powers is there, um, sometimes Rich Willie, who we've had on this podcast. Um, But one of them is the Running Summit, which happens out in Provo, Utah, I think. Um, It's in Utah. I just don't know if it's Provo. Um, And it's a weekend-long course where they kind of talk about the most recent and things in um, running injuries and kind of have some really helpful resources on mechanics there as well. Um, And then if you're really, this is kind of more for like new PTs, but the course that I am, this is where I met Matt Klein, but this is the course that I think gave me such a foundation in understanding biomechanics. It's a six month certification course at the Movement Performance Institute in Los Angeles. Um, And it's ran by Chris Powers, but you go out to LA once a month for six months and you'd spend the whole weekend there. And it's called the lower extremity or integrating technology into practice lower extremity biomechanics. And so check out the Movement Performance Institute. That's like, hey, I really want to invest in my ability to understand biomechanics. That's where I would go. Um, Fantastic course. I would do it over and over and over again because I thought it was really, really well done. Um, So those are are some options. Um, But again, those are more for like, hey, I'm a PT wanting to get into running. Um, But David, do you have any? Yeah, it's tough, right? Like most of the resources that I can think of are probably more going to be geared towards physical therapists. There was, and I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. I'm like looking over at my bookshelf there and I I don't see it, but there is a, like a brief little handout specifically on gate. Um, It's a published book that is technically a textbook, but it's, it's really short and it kind of goes through things and it kind of hits the broad strokes of everything and Mm. it's a good resource i'll have to get the name of it and we'll have to get it in the podcast notes later um but it's a solid one it's a kind of a quick i mean quick and dirty is not the word for it it's it's very in detail but (laughs) it's just (laughs) like but it's like the need to know stuff you know where it just like breaks it down and it's very very quick and it's probably more than you need right it's talking about like angles of like the hip and the ankle and the knee and like Stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it, it at least gives you some things to look for. Um, there's also an Instagram account. I think it's called Gate Happens. Um, 
and mm-hmm. they kind of do a couple different examples, whether it's walking. Um, I haven't actually been following them too long. They just stumbled into my feed recently, but they have some pretty good stuff on there. I got to go do a deep dive. Um, yeah. But there's there's some stuff out there. I mean, I, you look up the word gate, um, you'll find stuff. Walking gate, running gate. Um, there, there'll be some good stuff out there. It's something that people have been looking at for a while. Um, yeah. And then there's also like, I mean, if you are a clinician, like, and you have like MedBridge, there's courses. Like, I think Jada Sherry has one on gate, and I think um, someone I, else I was going to bring up his book. Yeah. Jada uh, Sherry, he has one called Anatomy for Runners, and I think that that's kind of like a foundational. It would be. A, I think it's written in a way that a lot of people could have access to it and understand what he's talking about. Yeah, so that's, like, there's things out there. It's just it's tough because so much of it is geared toward clinicians. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, broad strokes. I mean, I would just kind of look around. You could do some basic searches. Um, I'm sure there, something would come up. Yeah, and this is where Bach <laughs> is. Our our media manager Bach is probably like. This is why we have to create our guide and like our educational right, resources right. for running shoe this stores. Is, this, this is, is our it thing. Right here. We need to do it. Yeah, yeah. we should do this. So, hey, maybe maybe, maybe this will be the kick in our pants to actually put some stuff out there for stores to be able to use. Um, totally. Yeah. Certainly. <laughs> we both Thanks, got caught. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think he put this in here to catch us on the spot, realizing we needed to actually do what he says. All right, let's move forward. So Russell asks. I was wondering if you have any info on running cadence. I'm a taller runner, six foot four inches, and have tried drills, running with a metronome, changing foot strike, and I don't think I'm overstriding, but nothing seems to increase cadence for the long haul. Is this something I should worry about? I'm usually at 158-ish on an easy run. So first to find cadence, bring everyone up to speed on like what that means, and then let's go from there. Yeah, so a cadence usually referred to in steps per minute, like how many times you're striking the ground in a given amount of time. So you can think of the cadence, like a faster cadence is going to look a little bit quicker, like a wheel. And then like a slower cadence might look a little bit more loopy and kind of longer flowy strides. Um, Not necessarily longer, I guess, but just slower moving strides. Um, There's this notion out there that people think that there's this like 180 steps per minute that you have to hit. Um, you don't have to hit that. I'm sorry. Like that's everyone has their own like biologic um, cadence that they like to run at. And truth be told, I mean, it's not just cadence, right? You have stride length, you have how much power, like, and then like the pace you're running does change your, your foot strike does change. Some people do pick up the cadence when the speed's faster. Some people slow it down when it's not uphill, downhill. There's so many variables that go into it. I don't think I would worry about it. Um, the whole idea originally was like, oh, if you're at 180 steps and then they base it off of like a mile, right? Like, like a four minute mile essentially. And it's like, if you get 180 steps in a 60 second lap essentially. And it's like, that shouldn't be the basis for someone going and running a marathon or something. Yeah. They did like a, what's the average, I think it was a, like an observational study of like, what's the average cadence for the elite runners at a 10K? And it was like 180, (laughs) (laughs) like at a world-class like event. It's like, is that really what we need to be shooting for is, you know, yes, 180 is no magic. Sorry, keep going. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, everyone's so different. And I think when I look at a runner, I think a beautiful example of this is someone like Kenanisa Bekele. Where like you, you love Bekele, I'm a big Bekele fan, man. I you am. are, but you look at someone and how he runs. Like his stride does change, his cadence does change. Like depending on where he is in a race, it could be the same exact race. The distance hasn't changed, and whether he's surging or not surging, dying, not dying. You know, like I mean, he doesn't usually die very hard. He's usually one of the top people <laughs> in the world, but like, <laughs> but it just shows like. I don't think the cadence matters as much as people give it credit for. And that might just be my hot take there. Um, I've seen plenty of people have slower cadences and have very powerful strides and run very well. So, yeah, it's good. I don't know. I would be curious. I mentioned this name earlier, but one of the, the, the leading researcher on running cadence is Brian Heiderscheidt. He's at UW-Madison. That's kind of what he is like dedicated his lab to studying. Um, and just because you study something doesn't mean you think it's the silver bullet for everyone. Um, I think that's important. And so 
actually, it reminds me, I've been wanting to reach out to him to get him on the podcast because I think him talking about Cadence would be super enlightening for all of us to see, like, the person who's producing the research that everyone uses to, like, talk about Cadence. Uh, it'd be it'd be super cool to hear his perspective. Totally. Um, and I've heard him speak before and just, he's really articulate and does a good job explaining things. Anyway, um, some of the stuff that comes out of his research that is not, his is not attached to that 180 is this gold standard. He bucks against that. What he does is his studies basically look at runner's chosen cadence and compares metrics between that and how those metrics change at 5% more than their chosen cadence and 10% more than their chosen cadence. And so what he's found with those studies is, is myriads of things, but ultimately total workload goes down with cadence that is 5 or 10% greater than your self-selected cadence, the total patellofemoral stress uh, and, and compression stress goes down when you increase your cadence 5 to 10% from your starting cadence. That's the kind of stuff that he's finding. Overall workload is going down, and that's why there's sometimes a push, um, and you'll see this on social media, and I think it's not necessarily helpful. It's a push on social media to say, hey, get your cadence up because you're going to get all these benefits. You only really need those benefits, in my mind, if you need those benefits. And so somebody is going to be able to handle a cadence that might be like yourself, might be a bit lower, even though that someone else might not be able to handle the loading that's coming down the pipeline for them. If you have been running that way your entire life, your body has probably started adapting to the cadence number that you've ran at for your entire life. And therefore, you may not need those changes in the amount of stress going through your body. That said, if you end up like, oh, now I'm going to go train for a marathon or a 50K or 100K or something, then you might consider, hey, how could I minimize the amount of stress on my body? This could be one way to do it. I know you've tried some strategies with um, metronome and stuff. There are actually studies on trying to change your cadence and using a metronome over a certain regimented period of time that has been shown to show over like 80% um, compliance in terms of like your brain switching your running um, to kind of the new selected cadence. But that said, I don't know necessarily know if it's for you, if it's necessarily needed. Um, as we've kind of mentioned, I think it's going to depend on a lot of different factors and if you really need to decrease the amount of stress on your body. That said... As well, when you're doing an easy run, your cadence will likely drop down. Um, some people have very large fluctuations fluctuations in their cadence if you're running slower versus running faster. And so that would be a typical thing to find that your cadence drops when you're doing an easy run versus a workout. Um, so I, I will say the there's another study out there in young people. So I don't know how old you are writing this question, but um, in adolescence, there's a significant increase in stress fractures in people who have a cadence less than 158 than those who had a cadence higher than 171. It was like a 50% increase in uh, stress fracture risk for, for that population. Um, so I don't know if you fit in that category, in which case we would you know, maybe talk about it a little bit more because um, that could be one factor to kind of mitigate some of that risk. But honestly, you've probably adapted to this if you've been running for a long time and it's not something that that sticks out to me. Um, but yeah. I do think cadence, when you do start having injuries, if you're going to gait retrain, it's a very low-risk gait retraining option because most of the changes decrease the amount of demand on your body pretty much anywhere across the board. Right. Yeah. And it also just and kind of teaches more. you to be lighter on your feet as well, I think. Yes. Speaks volumes there. I was just pulling yeah. up my long run today. Um mm. Because I was just curious to see myself, because I honestly don't really pay attention to cadence ever. Um, I think it's usually in the 170s, but so today's long run essentially was 30 minutes easy and then 60 minutes at like a steady, fast pace and then kind of a cool down. Looks like average was 176, max 206. That was that was probably a downhill. That was probably a downhill. (laughs) Let me see here. Okay, so looking in the first thirty minutes here, I'm just kind of scrubbing across here. So we're looking at mostly one seventy ish, and then now we're past the thirty, and now we're running faster. Okay, I actually stay pretty similar. I I went up a little bit, but I didn't really pick up much. But I guess that's still a pretty controlled pace for me. That's not really like a race pace. Right. Yeah, I was just curious. curious. Yeah, I don't know, live on the air there. Look at some data. 
<laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, so I, I feel like there isn't a nice, concise answer for for you, Russell, but I think that there's a chance that you're uh, you don't need to overthink it. Um, if you are starting to, if you have recurrent injuries and stuff, talking to a physio who could guide you like a running PT, um, that could guide you through some of these changes that could be beneficial and giving you a regimented way to learn. Um, just, just a, this is down a mini rabbit hole too, but learning new motor tasks is challenging. Like it's not easy for our brain to learn a new way of doing something, particularly when it's a continuous task. So what a continuous task is, is something like running where there is no discrete start and stop. Swinging a baseball bat is a discrete task. You start with it here, you swing through, follow through, and the task is done. And you can more easily make changes to those discrete tasks. Whereas when you do something like running or walking or swimming, there's a a part of your brain that basically activates and says, run pattern (laughs) and you just go run and be able to be able to change that and have it change the actual pattern of that, that, that part of your brain is very difficult. So there are ways to regiment gait retraining to help promote the brain changes that need to happen for that pattern. Um, so it's probably a good idea if you do want to change your gait to have it guided by somebody who understands those principles. Um, so that's just a little, little rabbit hole and side tangent that I thought was worth going on. But we should move on. We have two more questions, and we're going to try to hit them both. Um, Thomas sends in a question about a popular Saucony series. Um, Now that Saucony is getting rid of the endorphin shift, what would be a good replacement for that shoe uh, between a 3 and 5 millimeter drop? Um, I find... Oh, I find Hoka's to be a little bit too cushy. That said, I primarily, primarily run between 5 and 15 miles every two or three days. Good replacement for this shoe. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say the Kinvara Pro probably. I mean, it's kind of a similar-esque build. The only thing is I didn't catch was the drop ratio on that question. That's a little bit higher drop. That's a little bit higher, right? Yeah. So so three to five? I would... Hmm, that's a good question. (laughs) But I would say this: like, just like doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Yes, that's. I think that's (laughs) my point. Is like a shoe. Like we've talked about on this show before. Drop is the difference between the static measurement of the foam in the heel compared to the foam in the forefoot. When we're running, we're loading that foam. So drop is this dynamic thing, and it depends on how you load the shoe. There's a lot of soft foam inside of the Kinvara Pro. So that heel is compressing, plus you have a rocker built onto it. And so that rocker plus the foam compression, it runs like, it doesn't run like a high or even a mid-drop shoe. It just, it it feels like it's not really a factor um, in the shoe itself. So I I agree with you. Talk about why the Kinvara Pro, I guess, um, in this scenario. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it's a similar profile where you have a wider base, you have kind of a sharper toe spring up front. It's kind of like one of those shoes where you're kind of constantly in this little like gentle rolling motion. Another shoe that comes to mind as well would be the, um, we had said it earlier, but the A6 Glide Ride. That's a little bit more dramatic. Yeah, it's it's, it's definitely a little bit more dramatic, but it does give you a similar feel there. and then I also think of some of the on models as well. The cloud flow is a little bit lower, so that would it wouldn't be quite as similar of an experience there, but the forfeit's a similar experience. Um, cloud Monster, Adidas Boston 12 will give you a little bit of that kind of a feeling up front as well. Um, I think it's really looking at the experience of the shoe. So kind of a wider base and a sharper toe spring up front is kind of what I'm picturing. Um, as far as your shift replacement there, but I, I, I think the Kinvar Pro is worth the go there. It doesn't. That seems like a pretty natural transition to me. Yep, I was going to say the same, and I was going to bring up the Glide Ride Three. The only thing I think that's a six millimeter drop, and then the only thing with that one is that there is more of a toe spring in that shoe. So toe spring is is where the actual platform where your foot rests kind of curves up, whereas rocker is like built into the midsole. So if you're sensitive to rockers. Glide Ride 3 might not be your top option, but if that's not a problem, that would be one that I would consider. Um, I also think that another one that isn't as low drop as you're thinking is the Nimbus 26. It has a bit of a rocker to it, runs a little bit you know, stiffer in the forefoot, and it firmed up compared to the 25. So I know that 
for Hoka's, those kind of felt too cushy for you. Um, so that one is running a little bit firmer now in comparison to what it was in the past. Another one that I don't think, <laughs> it definitely doesn't feel categorically the same, but when I was thinking about non-cushy shoes, my my mind went to the Hyperion Max and it oh, that's, that's is a little a bit option. stiffer and it's yeah. got a rocker. It's just a little bit yeah. lower. It, it's just, it's not the same as the shift. Like it doesn't have that like structured cushioning like the shift has, but I think that there's some, there's some parallels I don't there. Know. I, there's I, some parallels I, there. It's not as far of a stretch as you think in my head. Yes. I, 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 I feel like it can still line up there. Yeah. Cool. All right, our final question for the night is from our very own BJ, our very own Casper, our very own audio engineer. And he is asking us, if you could build a three or four shoe rotation from one brand, what brand would you pick and what shoes would you select? BJ. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you putting these parameters on us? Um, Okay. So you have to choose one company. You have to go yep. three to four shoes. So you're basically looking at a sponsorship. Then who's your who's your company, right? Like, yeah, that's a good way to think about <laughs> that's it. That's like you're yeah. sponsored. Man, that is so tough. So for me, because I do race semi frequently, they have to have a racing shoe that agrees with me. And then because I run a lot, they have to have a training shoe that agrees with me. So that's kind of what I'm thinking first, and then a training companion somewhere in the middle. So basically it'd be a three to four shoe rotation. If I'm thinking across the board, uh, man, that is tough. Uh, I think the first couple companies that come to mind for me, ironically, I I think there's three that immediately come to mind. (laughs) So I could see myself going Saucony Ride 17, Saucony Endorphin Speed 4, Saucony Endorphin Elite. And then you can throw in pretty much any other fourth shoe just for general usage. Um, And then the other one would be On, looking at the On Cloud Monster for a lot of like higher volume stuff. And then the Cloud Flow 4 for kind of being my more nimble, lower to the ground shoe. And then having the Cloud Boom Echo 3 as the racing shoe. You like that one enough. Yeah, yeah, it's a great shoe. Yeah, Dang. I just I just ran on the track on it the other day. Yeah, great. And then uh, the other one would be Mizuno of all companies. I like wow. the wa- I like the Wave Rider. That could be a daily trainer for me. I mean, that's the, a workhorse. Yeah, yeah, I think could do everything. I like the Rebellion Flash too. That just came out. You know, like that's a solid training companion. And I just did that long run I just talked about. That was in the Rebellion Pro Two. That was sixteen miles this morning in it. So I'm actively running in their shoes. Like I could see that yep. happening. Um, the other one would be like maybe Adidas. I just, the only thing is I just, the Audios Pro 3 did not work for me. So I'd, oh, that's right. I'd have to resort to the Takumi Sen 9 for my all distance racing shoe, essentially, you know? Yeah. And I don't know if I feel mm-hmm. comfortable making that jump. Right. What about you? So which one though? Which one? I got to pick one. Gotta, Come on, man. Yeah, that's uh, what B, it's, it's BJ's rules. Uh, I think out of general usage and versatility, I probably would lean Saucony here. I think the Ride okay. 17 would be the workhorse. The Endorphin Speed 4 I like for pretty much any kind of workout. And then yep. the Endorphin Elite has been a, a shoe that I have raced in several times. So I think that yeah. would probably be that probably where I'm leaning. I feel like that's your tipping point for you. Like in your spot, it's which shoe would I actually want to race a marathon in? Because you're trying to, you have goals and you're shooting for it and you're like dipping into some cool territories. So if you don't have the, you've picked that shoe for your marathon. Two marathons. Two marathons? Two marathons. Yeah, so it's yep. like, that. that's kind of telling. Uh, for me, I, I don't have as much of the racing bend as you. However, I do care what it's like to run on race day. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be just, I, I, now that I've been spoiled to being exposed to some of these super shoes and just how it feels to run in them, it'd be hard to not have something at least that could perform, like, well. There's two companies for me as well. One of them was Saucony, except I would take the Endorphin Pro 3, um, not the Endorphin Elite. Elite didn't work as well for me. The Ride 17 would be my trainer. I would uh, add in the Speed 4 for sure, and then I would actually bring the Endorphin Rift along because I do like 
an option to get out on like the Ice Age Trail. So, and I'm picking the Rift, assuming that they're going to update update it and improve the heel. Because <laughs> I thought the heel was super uncomfortable, but I loved like the underfoot feel. But the upper like is an easy change, and I I think they're going to. I have no idea, uh, but I hope they change it just because it was so rigid. It had yeah. like some parts I could dig in. So um, that would be kind of my my pick from Saucony. But I think that if I had to choose today based on where I'm at with my running, the fact that I'm coming back from this injury, I would actually go Topo for myself. Um, my kind of daily trainer would be the Phantom 3. That thing can just Good like yeah. eat up easy miles. Um then I like the Spectre, um, and so I've raced a half marathon in that and enjoyed taking it. It wasn't like an all-out race, but I took it out for the half marathon, and I enjoyed it for that distance. It's light. It's got a little bit of bounce. Um, I really love uh, the – so <laughs> the shoe that I actually wear the most of anything right now is the Topo Traverse, which is like a, their their hiking shoe. Yeah. But I wear it every day <laughs> for work all day long, and I would want that shoe so I could hike – or if I if I really wanted to double with running, I would just get the Ultra Venture Four subbed in for that. So I'd kind of have those three shoes, and then I would I would add in the Cyclone too, just because it's a fun lightweight trainer for some like faster speed work stuff and maybe some short races. But I think the Spectre is enough of a race shoe for someone like me that I'd be happy lacing that up for like the Bach run that's coming up, and I could enjoy kind of running in that um, in this phase. I think in a year from now, if I'm healthy and not like holding myself back i would want something with a little bit lighter of kind of that top end racing shoe but right now topo has a lot of stuff that actually fits my foot really well and is is comfortable for that foot so that's kind of where i lean yeah that's a good question that is a great question and then like i think about it too i'm like okay so what else is there and i'm like because i'm also looking in the camera that's facing me and i see the vomeros right there I'm like, okay. I, I was like, I love the Nike Vomero. And it's like, oh, well, Alpha Fly 3 is right there. Love the Alpha Fly 3. But then it's like, they don't have that middle ground shoe for me. I, I, I've i never really found myself working out in a pair of Nikes in the last couple of years. Like, that I could Zoom think of. Fly. Have you tried those Zoom, any recent Zoom Flies? No, I haven't. No, no, no. The recent Maybe ones. Just, yeah. And um, then the other, like, you haven't really ran in the Invincible much, have you? No. What did they. I know I tested that. Oh man, that one. I'm getting I'm getting the names mixed up in my head. The the one with the React foam with the white on the black and then it kind of whitened out and it had a kind of a gritty bottom. But no, there's nothing in the middle <laughs> no of it. Like, <laughs> yeah, they don't have an endorphin speed. Right. They don't have a Boston I think the 12. Zoom Fly was supposed to be that. And then they had the yes. turbo, right? Like what was it? It was the um Yeah. Yeah, but then yeah, like they just don't really have that right now. And I think we might, somebody might come in and say, Hey, well, you haven't tried the zoom fly. And that's actually like, that's just a, like the speed, but I want to, I yeah. want to hear what that, I, if so, somebody has an idea of that middle ground shoe from Nike, but I do think that's a space that they are not dominating at least for me. Yeah. But I like the invincible except the heel lockdown is terrible. If that was better, that would have been my trainer of the year, but it just, I couldn't get a lock at all. So gotcha. it just didn't, didn't work. But yeah, it, it'd be fun to be fun to be sponsored by Nike, I guess, huh? Any company man, that'd be sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like for me too, I mean like every company has a has a an argument to make for me to choose them. Like cause there are a lot of training shoes that I love from ASICs. Like running in the Nova Blast and then having the Super Blast. And then, you know, I, I haven't I just the only thing I don't like the MetaSpeed Sky and I haven't ran in the MetaSpeed Edge. So like racing wise, I, I wouldn't really have something for them. And then for me, New Balance has cool shoes, but they just haven't fit my foot well. So I can't get a lot of mileage in on a lot of their shoes. Um and some of the shoes had too much toe spring for me. So I like the SC Trainer V2 had too much toe spring, so I couldn't handle it. But a lot of good companies. But I'd go with Topo right now. Saucony Saucony would be if once I'm back. Saucony would take over just with how it works for me. Awesome. Well, thank you all for joining us on this journey. Uh, and thank you for submitting your questions. If you have more questions, you can always email at us at doctor email us at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com. You can always be following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or is it X? Um, we're on threads at doctors of running. You should be able to find us pretty easily, but thanks for joining today and we'll see you next time. <laughs>